Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome back from your weekends. Uh, we have a three-part show today, as we typically do on Monday. So towards the end, you'll hear perhaps a kind of cute and uplifting story about the resurgence of phone booths, although not on street corners where Superman can use them. But we'll explain more about that. We're also going to delve into an unusual uh, legal provision here in Connecticut that allows uh, animals to effectively have advocates, lawyers who represent at least justice for that animal uh, in court, uh, and some of the ins and outs and twists and turns uh, of that law. But first, we are going to talk to you about one of the big stories of the weekend, an extraordinarily complicated story, which much more directly touches almost everybody, if almost everybody uses Facebook. If we can agree that almost everybody uh, uses Facebook, then the Cambridge Analytica story may be more than some of the other scandals that have percolated through uh, the last two years uh, is one that washes right up at you. It's a very complicated story, but some very good journalism has been done about it. Uh, Some of it uh, has involved the New York Times and Gabriel Dance, uh, deputy investigative editor of the New York Times and former managing editor of the Marshall Project, uh, an organization that we've worked with in the past, uh, is joining us now. Welcome to the conversation, Gabe Dance. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is a hard story to explain. Do you have, um, in terms of the story that the New York Times broke this weekend, do you have your own kind of nutshell version of it? Sure. There's a firm that we've been investigating for a little over a year now that goes by the name of Cambridge Analytica, and it's a political data firm. And the questions that have been swirling around this firm, which was used by Ted Cruz and Donald Trump in the presidential election, is just how effective their their modeling is. But what's very different about this firm is they promise to do what's called psychographic modeling. And the idea behind that is that they determine what the personality of people are. They combine that with voter data, and then they figure out the best way to advertise to them that fits their personality, and they can influence them how to vote. All right. um, We're going to hear a clip of Christopher Wiley, uh, who is a whistleblower. Uh, I think it's fair to call him that, uh, who uh, worked for and with uh, Cambridge Analytica in the early days and then left. This is part of a Channel 4 report, the entirety of which Cambridge Analytica, I believe, is trying to keep off the air, Channel 4, uh, in in the United Kingdom. Uh, So here's Chris Wiley, uh, who's one of the people who worked in the early stages on this project. If I am studying you, and I have enough information about you because you've curated your entire self online and I capture that, I can, I can anticipate wh- what are your mental vulnerabilities? What cognitive biases might you display in certain situations? But haven't I and volunteered I can, that I can exploit that. But are you saying that Cambridge Analytica lies in its political messaging? Because that's something they, they would completely deny. They, 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 they knowingly misrepresent the truth 
um, in such a way that is conducive to their objective. What's your proof for that? I was there. Uh, we worked on we worked on all kinds of experiments about what 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 would what would lead a person from A to B. But if you're working on behalf of a political client, you're allowed to try and persuade voters. Persuade, not your, manipulate. About your message. Persuade, not manipulate. There's a difference. All right, so Gabe Dance, I mean, the premise here is that small amounts of information about you, me, anybody else who might be participating on, on Facebook, right down to things where we've clicked like, that every time we do that, we click like or do some other activity on Facebook, it's kind of like dropping a bean into a jar that is filling up with beans. And that jar is a psychographic profile of us. All of the beans that get dropped into that jar constitute um, ways of understanding us and how we think and what we feel. And if you can see that jar and look at all the beans in it in, in their entirety, you can begin to try to influence us because you know so much about us. You know more about us. It is, it is sometimes claimed you, you know more about us if you have access to all those beans than people who actually know us, people in our lives. That's essentially what Cambridge Analytica was proposing to do anyway, right? That's right. In, in, there's, a center, yeah. there's, a, there's a place in the university, uh, or Cambridge University in England, has a center called the Psychometric Center. And at this Psychometric Center, they've been studying exactly what you're speaking about. And there's a professor named Michal Kosinski, who uh, worked at the Psychometric Center for years, who has published papers, scientific academic papers, saying that, exactly as you were saying, if, if somebody knows and I can't remember the specific numbers, but it's right around 70 of your likes, seven zero of your likes. They know you better than your spouse. Right. So that's a claim. They, they can either back that claim up or, or they can't. But meanwhile, we who use Facebook, you know, we have some kind of awareness that every once in a while we click on a too long, didn't read terms and conditions uh, thing. We, we agree. We don't really know what we agreed to. We have kind of a sense, though, that there's a lot of data available to us. How does the data that was scraped, as they say, by this uh, you know, original team, which was not Cambridge Analytica, this was sort of a research project uh, that kind of preceded the use by Cambridge Analytica, but then fed to Cambridge Analytica, how is this dif data different than, I don't know, what I sort of latently, subconsciously think the world has about me? Sure. Well, just really quickly to distinguish, there was an original academic study and survey which collected this information. Then subsequently, uh, a, pr a private individual, another individual, did another uh, survey of Facebook users that that data was then sold to Cambridge Analytica. So there were, there were two different sets, and one was specifically developed for Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. But the way that it's a little bit different is that, yes, of course, on Facebook, um, you, there are certain things that you make public and you know you make public. Your name, your age if you put it on there, your gender, your location. Some of these things anybody can see if you're on Facebook. Um, and then there are some things that only your friends can see. Your likes, um, some of the things you share. And over the years, Facebook has gotten um, better at letting users control what they share and where more granularly. At the time, there were much fewer of these kind of granular controls, and Facebook has kind of almost always, it seems, to err on the side of opt out, which is to say that if you don't say, if, if you don't say, I don't want to share this, then by default, usually you're sharing something. 
So at this time, which was 2014, it was possible for somebody when they say, okay, I accept this application, and many people use applications on Facebook, whether they're Spotify or readers or some of these things. When you say, okay, yes, I'd like to use this application, at the time, it also allowed you to pull in a bunch of information on your friends as well. And so it's not that this data, um, even at the individual profile level, is maybe that valuable because there's only one, um, but it's that they were able to pull in tens of millions of these. And when you can pull in tens of millions of them, and you've done very specific studies on a few hundred thousand of them, which they did, you're able to generate models which are able to, according to them, build these personality profiles of individuals. Right. So there was sort of a Trojan horse phenomenon here, I think. So uh, what these researchers did, what they proposed to do, was to essentially hire people to uh, make themselves available uh, for data mining through this app. They hired 270,000 people, as I understand it. I think they used Amazon's Mechanical Turk site, which is a place where you can kind of recruit uh, temporary workforce. So they get 270,000 people uh, to agree to, to be studied in this way and to be mined by an app. But what's not clear, and I don't know if it's clear to those 270,000 people, I don't know who it's clear to, is that this really will enable all of their friends to be studied. That's how we get from 270,000 to 30 and then 50 million, right? That, that you, you, They cracked the door open with this first cohort of 270,000? You're exactly right. And, and so did, did, did those people who got hired... Did they, did they know that they were also effe- effectively opening the door for research into their friends? It's very hard for us to know right now, and we're trying to figure that out a little better. We have not um, found any of the people who took this survey. The survey was done, as you said, using Mechanical Turk, but also another service named Qualtrics because uh, you get different types of users on these different, on these different platforms. Um, what we do know, uh, according to Facebook, as well as the, the original researcher, is that the, what the users, the Facebook users, these 270,000 who completed the survey and then granted access, they were under the impression, if they even read the terms of service, which you and I know, um, probably most people don't, but they were under the impression that this was to be used for academic purposes. And so I would guess that, yes, at the time, I think it, it's impossible not to um, have somewhere when you say, I allow this application, the application tells you all of the access and privileges it's going to grant. And so uh, I, I would assume that it did say, like, your friends and everything. Um, but it's, it's very hard to tell. It's very hard to tell because this happened several years ago. Facebook has not clearly been forthcoming about this information. And so we're trying to figure out how much they knew and what exactly they knew. But it's very similar actually to some of what's happened with the advertising and um, what some of the Russian advertising and the manipulation of the advertising platform of Facebook is that this is an automated system. So when somebody creates this app, when, when Professor Kogan, which was the name of the researcher who built the app that collected all this data and sold it, um, when he when he did that, he really just like checked some forms and did a drop down and said it was for academic research. I mean, this isn't an application process where somebody at Facebook, a human being, is reviewing it or anything to that effect. And so, because of these automated systems, as well as how long it's taken Facebook to to acknowledge this 
data leak or breach or whatever the whatever the term is, which is in dispute, um, it makes it very difficult for us to, to say specifically what happened and what they read and and what pretenses they were under when they when they allowed this access. Right. So, and we should say that. Facebook as a company uh, is kind of developer friendly. I mean, they're interested in apps. In you know, they're they're not chasing people away who want to try out apps. Apps are good for Facebook. I mean, think about Farmville, uh, Farmville, an app that makes you spend or causes you to spend a lot more time on Facebook than you otherwise would. So Facebook has kind of an interest. If somebody comes in and says, "Well, you know, I get this thing I want to try," they they are maybe a little bit more likely to let them try it. Than than a more conventional media company, right? Yeah, that's true. Facebook has what's called an API, and this API is a programming interface so that computer programmers can make these applications. And as you said, those applications are things like Farmville and and there's Spotify. And you know, and when I've made Facebook applications previously in my role as a journalist, that kind of describe different things about readers and allow them access to their data. So there are there are a variety of yeah good reasons that you could you could grant access or allow this to be used. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that, you know, Facebook, once again, seems to be overtaken a little bit by their own size and momentum. And it's clear that there were also uh, players, nefarious players, who are much more inclined to use this for their own purposes. Right. So uh, effectively, Facebook thinks they're dealing with scholars. They are dealing with scholars for a while. But on the other end of this pipeline, you've got Cambridge Analytica. Uh, This is a company uh, that was founded with the money of Robert Mercer, who's a really major uh, far-right Republican, uh, uh, well, businessman who also thinks of himself, I think, as as a potential kingmaker, particularly if he can, I mean, it really is like some kind of Bond movie. You know, if I could control this data, I'll be the most powerful man in the world. (laughs) Well, anyway, he's kind of thinking that way. Steve Bannon is working with him. The name Cambridge Analytica comes from Steve Bannon. He's the guy who thought that was a really cool sounding name. I mean, that's what this company ultimately is. This company that winds up with 50 million psychographic profiles is, in fact, a manifestation of the American political far right, correct? Yeah, that essentially Cambridge Analytica was developed by Bannon and the Mercers with the intention of changing Americans' minds and being able to influence them in ways that they are unsuspecting to and perhaps most vulnerable to manipulation. I would say that's accurate. Uh, actually, let's hear um, Chris Wiley. Uh, Wolfie, this is going to be A2. Uh, let's hear Chris Wiley, the aforementioned whistleblower uh, on Channel 4, uh, talking about what Steve Bannon wants. What did Steve Bannon want? Steve wanted weapons for his culture war. That's what he wanted. And that's, that's, we, we offered him a way to accomplish what he wanted to do, which, in, was, which in, was change the culture of America. Which is actually, um, Gabe, a somewhat more profound thing to do even than win an election. And, and there, what, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think there are still somewhat lingering questions about how big a role this Cambridge Analytica da- data sp- 
uh, specifically played uh, in the 2016 election. We know that the ultimate goal, uh, as you're hearing here, there is to change the entire culture and get people kind of believing and thinking different sets of things than they maybe currently believe or think. That's a bigger thing even than winning an election. But I know even just from New York Times reporting, it's a, there's a, a little bit of a question. Uh, I mean, Cambridge Analytica has bragged a lot at one point about what a big player they were in, in this election. But there are other people who say, ah, yeah, maybe not this time. Uh, I, you're absolutely correct. I, I, there's a huge question as to what role and how large Cambridge Analytica played. It's important to remember the context of the election, um, which we often forget. And that, that's that Donald Trump was not expected to win this election uh, by almost anybody, including most reports himself. And so Cambridge Analytica was actually working for the Ted Cruz campaign in the 2016 election before going to work for the Donald Trump campaign later after Ted Cruz dropped out. And so what various reports have said is that it's that Cambridge Analytica did not have time to readjust their models to Donald Trump in order to be effective in the election. Now, it's also not helpful that Cambridge Analytica's CEO, a fellow named Alexander Nix, seems to be willing to lie and um, manipulate facts. He came out right after the election basically crowing about how Cambridge Analytica won the election for Donald Trump. He immediately then started backing off on that. So even Cambridge Analytica themselves have been very unclear about just how involved or not involved they were. What we do know is they certainly were employed by the Trump campaign. They had at least $5 million put into them by the Trump campaign. Um, and, and there's also lingering doubts, very valid doubts, about whether or not this psychometric um, modeling is effective. Uh, we haven't seen actually any proof that this was effective. Um, but I certainly think that it doesn't take very many people long to realize the potential effectiveness of it. And that's why I think so many people are, are interested in it. Right. It's potential uh, and, and it's 2016 reality are two different things. Uh, back to that's Mr. Right. Nix for a second. Um, th- this kind of performance is not confined to the shores uh, of North America. Over in England, there's a similar conversation going on. It's connected somewhat to Brexit. And Nix appears to uh, have at one point lied to Parliament about this, right? In a parliamentary hearing, I think he said that they didn't use any Facebook data. That's right. Completely not true. I mean, he'll say whatever seems to be beneficial to him in that moment. I don't know who that reminds me of. Off the top. I'd have to think about who that reminds me of off the top of my head. Um, so one thing we should say is, although there are little wisps and threads, this particular story that we're telling right now doesn't uh, have a really good, strong, visible, hard link yet to some of the Russia stuff, that uh, the Russian meddling stuff that has dominated uh, a lot of our conversations. It does not. There, I mean, there are some, we've reported that there are some seemingly somewhat odd connections between Cambridge Analytica and Russia. They were involved with some kind of um, meetings with Luke Oil, which is a very large oil company in Russia with ties to the Kremlin. Um, But no, there's no specific things that tie it back to any of the kind of Russian interference that we have found so far. 
But the story also, back to that whole idea of, of the potential, too, because Cambridge Analytica probably is not the last company to want to try to do stuff like this. And, and so what, is, what has happened is that the um, attention and interest of lawmakers and regulators on both sides of the Atlantic has been excited by this. And in particular, one of the things they want to know is what Facebook is doing about this. Uh, and they want to know it not from some spokesperson, uh, not from some director of marketing and in public engagement. They want to know it uh, from a fellow named Zuckerberg. Um, so uh, one of the things that we're hearing now is that, that uh, b- both in, in England uh, and in America, they want to get Mark Zuckerberg into a hearing. Uh, let's do A4. This is um, actually Mark Zuckerberg uh, talking in 2017 uh, about what he thinks needs to happen. I wish I could tell you that we're going to be able to stop all interference. But that just wouldn't be realistic. There will always be bad actors in the world, and we can't prevent all governments from all interference. But we can make it harder. We can make it much harder. And that's what we're going to focus on doing. So today, I want to share the steps that we're taking to protect election integrity and make sure that Facebook is a force for good in democracy. And while the amount of problematic content that we've found so far remains relatively small, any attempted interference is a serious issue. That sounds good, Gabe. But I mean, in general, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, Facebook Facebook has not been terribly forthcoming about a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of times their numbers are, are wrong. At one point, they I think they said that Russian posts on Facebook amounted to 10 million. Now there's 126 million of them. And in general, asking them hard questions doesn't always get you hard answers. Correct. I mean, I think that there is a lot of accountability Facebook needs to own here, and they've been extremely hesitant to do so. They knew about this data breach, or this data leak, uh, at least in December of 2015. You know, it is now more than two years later than that, and they would not have been forthcoming about this if we were not to report it. They were challenging our facts uh, up until publication, and in fact, they pre-published some, some, they published a few things that they only learned from us before our story broke, which is, uh, I would say, pretty bad form. Um, you know, they're, they're, I understand that it is difficult for Facebook. They have grown at a tremendous rate. They're a huge company now. They have billions of users. But with that, you know, it, it's the, the Superman or the Spider-Man line, you know, with, with tremendous power comes tremendous responsibility. And I would say that they have totally fallen down in taking responsibility for for the data of their their users and i mean we have to remember that their users are their money and so they they need to be able to protect their their investments right and you know i, I don't know whether whether you share my sense of this um but you know, obviously they've banned um, Cambridge Analytica from Facebook. I believe they've banned uh, Mr. Kogan to the researcher. There's a banned Chris Wiley. And I know that Chris Wiley left Cambridge Analytica and is now probably, uh, I think he's involved in his own own kind of company. But, you know, he's the whistleblower here. He's the guy that, he's the reason we know quite a bit of the stuff that we know. I thought it was a rather odd thing that they they suspended him, I think, from Facebook. I agree. I, I I don't know exactly what their rationale for suspending Mr. Wiley is. I, I could probably guess at some of it. But as you said, uh, Mr. Wiley is a complicated figure. He was certainly uh, one of the main architects of what Cambridge Analytica was doing. He was very aware of what was going on. But as you say, he has also decided that 
Um, what they were doing was inappropriate, if not illegal, uh, certainly in, in Britain, possibly. And and he has turned over a whole lot of documents that, honestly, it seems like Facebook would have had no idea without him. And and also, I think it's just a odd thing that they might think is symbolic, but banning a single user uh, is really kind of not something that's going to help Facebook out of this much larger problem of having their data exploited. Right. I think the more people know about this story, the more they're going to want to know about how it actually affects them and their use of Facebook. I think all over the country already, there are people who are thinking twice before clicking like here. So, um, Gabe Dance, I know we promised you you'd be out uh, at a certain time, so we're going to let you out. But it's been great to talk to you. This is a story that's going to roll on and on, I think, and and I'll have a lot of interesting permutations. You guys have done some great work. Uh, Deputy Investigative Editor of The New York Times, former Managing Editor for The Marshall Project, Gabriel Dance. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And so we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we have an interesting story to tell you about the way the law works for animals uh, in Connecticut. It's a unique law. It doesn't exist in any other state. Um, but it also doesn't work as well as it could. And people who are interested in knowing, for example, whether people who uh, are cruel to animals, who torture animals, uh, whether there's a, um, a hard link between that and other kinds of violence, violence against humans. Um, there, there isn't quite as much data about that as one might think. So that's another part of the conversation you'll hear right after this break. One of the things we want to talk to you about today is sort of an unusual, maybe unique law that Connecticut has that allows certain things to happen on behalf of animals. So joining us right now is the promulgator of that law, Diana Urban, a Connecticut state representative for the 43rd District serving North Stonington and Stonington, and Jessica Rubin, assistant clinical professor of law and director of the legal practice program. Uh, And so we'll start maybe, Diana, with uh, reminding people what Desmond's law is is. Well, you know, Colin, for the longest time I've worked with uh, Jessica, because she teaches animal law at UConn, to try to bring that connection between animal cruelty and future violent behavior to the, the normal way that we do things in society. We worked really hard on being able to get lawyers in court for the animal who has been a victim of egregious cruelty. And what made our law unique is when I hooked up with Jessica and the law school at UConn, bless their souls, they took this right under their wing and were willing to work with me so that law school students could actually be the advocates in court, along with lawyers pro bono. But those law school students would get this experience in court at no cost to the taxpayer. The court would have an extra resource, and we would actually be able to bring to the forefront how serious a crime of violence to animals is as a predictor and a red flag that they might, just might, 
do something else a little later on. Jessica Rubin, how unusual, to the best of your knowledge, is this law? Uh, How unusual is Connecticut's law that, that does provide advocates in court for animals? Connecticut is the only state in the country and, in fact, the only place in the world that has a program like this. So I'm thrilled that we're at the forefront, and I'm also thrilled that the response that we've received from other states has been very exciting. We've been asked to support other states' efforts in uh, pushing Desmond's Law, so we're testifying, advising them so that other states can replicate our effort. So, uh, Jessica, explain how the law is triggered. I mean, an animal can't ask for an advocate or representation, so uh, how, how is it decided that Animal X needs an advocate like you? So the law is permissive in that it allows a court in an animal cruelty case to appoint an advocate. Mm. And so an advocate can be appointed on the court's own initiative by or by request of a party. So, and, and Diana, this is done basically by an army uh, of volunteer advocates because uh, animals also do not pay their legal bills. It is so amazing that Desmond's army, they were just ridiculously good in pushing the legislature and never, ever giving up on making this happen. So, and they do it all volunteer. They are setting up a 501c3 as we speak, but they've been doing it all volunteer, keeping the records of the uh, the cruelty uh, issues, and then connecting with Jessica and her students to make this happen. So this is kind of an emerging uh, field, Jessica Rubin. This is uh, this whole area of animal rights law. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the specifics here, because I, as I understand it, one of the issues here is the way these cases are handled. If, in fact, nobody advocates for the animal, even if somebody does advocate for the animal, you've got to get prosecutors and judges who are probably better oriented towards the needs of human beings uh, and to the severity or seriousness, uh, uh, gravity of crimes committed against human beings than some of them are to crimes committed against animals, right? Maybe harder to get them to uh, follow a case all the way through. Right. So our prosecutors are already charged with enforcing our cruelty statutes. And because of the sheer volume of cases that our prosecutors handle on a day-to-day basis, They're not able to give equal attention to all cases, and so the advocates can play an important role there in giving extra resources in in terms of expertise and time to assist both the prosecutor and the courts in investigating and deliberating and eventually um, sentencing on these cases. I want to come back to that in a second, but Jessica, also maybe a distinction worth making. You're an animal advocate. That doesn't mean you're the lawyer for the animal, right? You're more representing justice. Correct. And in fact, in the first draft of the bill, we had described the advocate position as representing the interests of the animal. And a compromise that we made along the legislative path was to change that language so that the advocate is charged with representing the interests of justice. At first, I resisted that change. And in practice, I want to say that that language has been a much broader and beneficial charge for the advocates because rather than just representing the animal's interests, which in many of these cases where the animal is dead, um, the animal doesn't have ongoing interests. So in many of these cases, we're able to represent broader interests such as community safety, other animals, and future potential victims. So in hindsight, the broader language where the advocate represents the interests of justice has been a terrific charge and a terrific 
change that was made. Then the question, though, uh, Diana, becomes, all right, so um, you want to make sure that uh, that justice is done, but also that people who are cruel to animals, who do violence uh, to animals, uh, are deterred, that the crime is taken seriously. Some question may arise from how often these cases are nollied or how often these offenders are giving, uh, given accelerated rehabilitation. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I was elected in 2000, and when I came in, I asked for data going back 10 years on animal cruelty because I'm interested in it. Well, they said, we're sorry, Representative, but we purged that data. We don't know. I said, what? Seriously? So at that point, and that's why if you see the states, the, the data in the state of Connecticut, it starts in 2002. Mm-hmm. They started to archive it. And it was because of that data that we were able to ascertain that we only get convictions in 18% of the cases. The majority of the cases were nollied or used for accelerated rehabilitation. And that was a very, very strong way to represent this to my fellow legislators. And so, you know, Colin, where I really want to go is that this for me, and it's really even difficult for me to talk about what happened in Florida, but we know starting in 1997 that an incredible percentage, and actually between 1997 and 2001, all seven school shooters started with animal cruelty. We go to Columbine, animal cruelty. We're in Florida, animal cruelty. If we had paid attention, then we would have been able to step in and say, this is, a, this is an issue of violence, and we need to address it, and we need to figure out whether we can get in and with some preventative action. And that's the reason I think that Desmond's Law has been so, made such a splash around the country. We're in California. If we get California done, that's like the sixth largest economy in the world if California takes this law. Right. So, and just to sort of um, uh, emphasize this a little bit more. So if I'm the lawyer for somebody uh, accused of animal cruelty, uh, as the lawyer, uh, I've won a victory for my client if I can do something that ultimately gets his record expunged so it doesn't follow him around for the rest of his life, uh, what he did to a donkey or or to a a bird or a dog or a cat. Uh, On the other hand, as you're saying, this erases data, data that's potentially useful in even maybe being able to foresee things that might happen, maybe ward off a, a mass shooting someday. Yeah, and also it's not that I want them to go to jail because I not I don't think jail helps, but I think we could give them a suspended sentence so we know that it happened and then them get them into rehabilitation and find out why they have this anger, why they have this desire to mutilate, to kill. And Colin, some of the stories about these kids who poured bleach down their family dog's throat, then tortured the dog and then killed mom and went to their high school and killed four people. It's, it, it's visceral, that violence. And I think that what I'm talking about is what's gone wrong in that kid's head, in that kid's upbringing, and can we step in by paying better attention to what I am going to characterize as a call for help and and prevent this this kid from going and shooting up his school. Jessica Rubin, this whole area of uh, animal law and, and animal rights uh, is a, a vastly expanding one and probably one that is going to be 
interestingly contested uh, over the years and decades to come. In a way, we're trying, we're, we're maybe moving away from uh, a system that thinks of animals as chattel towards a system that thinks of animals as having standing. Uh, Peter Singer uh, writes about how an animal can have an interest. An animal can have an interest in in not experiencing pain. An animal can be have an interest uh, in not uh, being unfairly uh, and uncomfortably confined. But what we haven't identified legally, as I understand it, is an animal being, I mean, one of the reasons that you're the kind of advocate you are, an advocate for justice, is we're not 100% comfortable with the idea of an animal having the kind of standing that a human being can have in a legal system. Um, I'd say our legal system is is not there yet, but I would say that there is litigation pending right now in our state where, where it's been initiated with animals having standing. Yeah. Um, I, I also I want to go back to something Diana was saying too, Jessica, and that is because I think she was making an interesting point. I mean, judges in these cases are uh, in a little bit of a dilemma or at least struggling with two different sets of interests. On the one hand, you want to protect animals from violence and cruelty. On the other hand, you may have defendants in there who maybe even come from a culture where animals really are property, who haven't really been brought up to, to with a full set of sympathies or empathies uh, for animals. You don't necessarily want want to ruin that person's life. You want to maybe get them to see things a better way and, and act in a better way towards animals. Maybe you can say a little bit about how, how judges have to balance those two sets of concerns. So there are a few concerns at play here. One, as Representative Urban said, is that of deterrence. Another is that of punishment. Hmm. There are, however, other considerations that we're asking judges to make. One is predicting the potential that a, a defendant has to cause further harm in the future. And the important thing here is that a record accurately reflects what happened so that as a matter of transparency, members of the public can know what has transpired. So for example, if you go to hire someone for a home health care position or to take care of your animals or to be in your house, as a matter of transparency, if you do a background check, you would want to know what that person has done in their past. And some of the outcomes of animal cruelty cases make that impossible by expunging a record completely. Yeah, discoverability is, I think, a big part of this. So, Diana Urban, I've known you for almost 20 years now. Um, you are uh, a dreamer uh, in a lot of ways. And I mean, in a good way. What? Uh, a dreamer. What? You dream dreams. I'm a dreamer? Yeah, you're, a, you're a visionary. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things that we, we think about, I think, and we talk about is that there may come a day where uh, an animal really can fully be represented in court. You know, a, a monkey that's being used in lab experiments, an orca who's being used uh, to entertain people, but in a way that just takes no cognizance of whatever that orca is going through through that confinement. I would assume that you hope there will, be, will come a day where that animal can effectively testify or at least seek its own redress the way a human claimant would be able to do in our justice system. Well, I'm going to get a little philosophic here. That's what I was Colin. hoping you would do. And, you know, uh, we're very comfortable with a world that's anthropocentric, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, I talk about people that are like Joe or Jane-centric. The world revolves around the person, around Mm -hmm. man. And we really need to start to change that paradigm and think about a world that's biocentric. And, you know, I think that people are uncomfortable with that because they have been brought up, that's how they see the world, that it's anthropocentric. 
and I guess I am a dreamer, Colin. Mm. I've never actually thought of myself as a dreamer, but maybe I'll take that moniker, Diana the Dreamer. (laughs) I do foresee a world where we're going to be aghast at what we have done, that we're going to look back and say, how could we have treated animals the way we treated them? At what point are we going to start to think about that this, you know, the old spaceship routine when you're out in space and you look back and you say, holy moly, that's like planet spaceship Earth. And we're looking at 500 right whales, apparently, that are left. We're looking at polar bears that are going. We're looking at elephants. And at what point do we step back and say, yeah, it's not anthropocentric. This world is biocentric, and we need to recognize that. Jessica Rubin, give us a law professor perspective on this. <laughs> I'd like to add from the very philosophical to the very real and point out that there are cases pending right now in New York and Connecticut seeking standing for animals for chimpanzees in New York and for elephants in Connecticut. So it's actually happening in a very exciting and, and current way. Well, we promise to keep you uh, up to date on, on uh, developments like that. And uh, Jessica Rubin, Assistant Clinical Professor of Law and Director of Legal Practice Program uh, at uh, this is UConn Law School, I assume, right? Yes. Is that where you are? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Diana Urban, a Connecticut State Representative for the 43rd District, serving North Stonington and Stonington. They will help us uh, keep, up on, keep you up to date on stuff like this. But uh, as for now, thanks for coming in today. Thank always, you, Colin. Always great to be with you, Colin. So, that was that. Coming up, we have a conversation about the resurgence of, of all things, the phone booth. Stay with us. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Henry Cavill. For the rest of this week, enjoy some rebroadcasts of our favorite shows. And now, back to Colin. You want to know how old I am? I know this is a constant refrain on the show. You want to know how old I am? I am so old that if, you, if you've seen those movies where something happens, like in a courtroom or maybe a, a congressional hearing or something, and all the reporters run out towards the payphones... I have been that person in my life, in my career. I have been that person running out to find a payphone and maybe even trying to beat another reporter to uh, one of the available payphones when there weren't enough of them. That's how long I've been a reporter and that's how old I am. Of course, payphones went the way of the dodo, except that they're coming back. They're coming back for some very specific and some very good reasons, and we're going to talk about that right now. Dodi Stewart is freelance editor and writer uh, who recently wrote a piece about the return of the phone booth uh, for the New York Times. Dodi Stewart, phone booths are back, but they're not back out on the street corner where Superman can change uh, into his costume or where Doctor Who can jump into them and, and go to uh, far-reaching places. They're in much more specific environments. Do I have that right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, we're seeing them in workspaces, and these new phone booths actually don't have really any phones inside. You bring it's B Y O P. You bring your own phone. 
Yeah, although I think you mentioned that occasionally there's an old-fashioned retro landline sitting in there, but that's not really the idea, right? Right, and those are uh, those old-fashioned phones are actually just for decoration. Oh, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not functional. That's at the Wing, a women's club in New York. Yeah. Um, but we had some at um, when I was previously employed at Gizmodo Media, and there was just a little shelf inside, and a light, and a fan for ventilation, and a soundproof door, but no phone. So th- these are in work environments. Work environments have shifted to open offices. We we have the same thing here uh, at this company. We have open floor p- floor uh, plans and, and no cubicles even or anything like that. So there isn't even the illusion of separation from one another. So th- that's what these exist for, right? Just to get be able to get away? Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need a quiet workspace. You need to make a phone call that you don't want the entire office to hear. Um, and especially if you're a reporter and you're talking to a source and you, you know, want to question them in a private place. Um, and sometimes also there are video calls being made, video conferencing or Skype. And uh, it's easier to do it in an enclosed space and you don't have to feel weird about disturbing everyone around you. And I think the people around you are also very happy when you take your phone call elsewhere. Right. I, I think it makes both sides happy. And so these are not just at Gizmodo, right? These are at some fairly big companies? Yes. We're seeing um, everything from Google to startups and all kinds of work, work co-working spaces, um, purchasing freestanding booths. And it takes about an hour to uh, set them up, and then you're good to go. And how much does one of those freestanding booths cost? Well, they vary, but it's definitely going to be a couple of thousand dollars. Um, I think, you know, anywhere from $3,000 to if you want one that has two seats inside and you can have a mini conference with two people, um, you may pay up to $15,000. But when it comes right down to it, it sounds expensive, but it's cheaper than constructing a wall, so... Right. So, no, if you can do it for $5,000, I mean, here's there's some interesting things about this. First of all, they don't really have to look like phone booths, but they do often look co- like really nice phone booths. Phone booths, uh, in, in of, of my recollection, for the most part, weren't very nice and often were designed to get you out of there as fast as possible. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but these these are nice, but they look like phone booths. And I wondered, I wonder if that's sort of some kind of atavistic connection that we have, you know, that we, we understand. <laughs> Understand what this is. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, we're also seeing, you know, people um, construct some phone rooms that are built into the office space and um, are less booth-like and there's a little more space in there. But I think when it comes right down to it, what we're talking about is a small footprint, a glass door so you can see if someone's in there. And those things, you know, they don't take on that much <laughs> difference between the street ones and the and the upscale ones. Although what you do get maybe is a power outlet or a skylight or ventilation. You get things that phone booth designers didn't really think about because these are really designed more by people who are designing office environments. Yes, that's correct. And the and the skylights are very nice. And also the doors are soundproof usually, which wasn't really the case for the street phone booths. I mean, in a way, what this is, I, 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 I'm going to tell a story out of school. Maybe I won't mention the name. But so we have a very, very open office plan here. And one of our newest producers on, on one of the other shows, she just needs 
a work environment where, A, she can talk on the phone, which we all need, where you can talk to somebody without three or four parallel conversations going on within 10 feet of you. And sometimes even just she seems to need a chance to sort of go over her notes and think quietly. And so as I walk around this building, I'm always kind of stumbling over her in any unoccupied space where the door can be closed. And, and so in a way, this is probably the most space efficient way, what you're describing, of addressing a problem that really was created by this utopian dream that we had had of, of open office plans. Yeah, that's right. I think that the um, idea was that people in the same space would collaborate and share ideas and things like that. But when it comes right down to it, a lot of actual work is done in a solitary way. Um, and it requires focus and it requires sometimes phone conversations or just a little bit of quiet and <laughs> not being interrupted. Um, and so this does solve that problem. And, you know, the truth is there were a lot of um, office spaces that are supposed to look cool because they're so open and it's like the, it's like the tech startup look and it's futuristic. But, um, you know, someone that I spoke to who'd written a book about workplaces said that basically it just is cheap. <laughs> That's the cheapest way to have an office, one with no walls and, uh, you know, no separating offices. So I think one of the people that you spoke to said that, you know, a, a phone conversation going on four feet away from where you're trying to work is, you know, either a breach of etiquette or an actual noise pollution problem. I would imagine that a whole other brand of etiquette will eventually have to spring up around these things because I'm guessing people are going to want them, which is probably a good argument, A, for not putting chairs in them, you know, have them be sort of stand-up phone booths like the old phone booths were so people get out a little sooner. And, and I don't know, I, will companies, I'm thinking they'll have to put time limits on, right? You can't stay in here longer than 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would be um, very tempting to just camp out in there all day and have your own tiny micro office. When you were at Gizmodo, I mean, did you use the phone booth? I did often, very much. And was it what? What did you usually use it for? If I'm not prying too much into your life? <laughs> no, I mean I was. Uh, it, I used for conversations that with my doctor to refill a prescription. Yeah. <laughs> I used it for work conversations that really where you just don't want to disturb people with half of a dialogue going on, you know, which is mm. very distracting. Um, so talking to people in different bureaus around the country. And I also just used it for, uh, you know, when I needed to write a memo or a letter and I just needed like half an hour without anybody interrupting me. I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to reveal this or not, but you are also a superhero. Did you find in terms of getting your costume on that it was better to be in the phone <laughs> booth or did you just use the ladies? It seems to be the ladies room with the stall is the better choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm working on a situation where I can just instantly have it uh, pop into my over my body like I'm Black Panther. So right, or go Jessica, <laughs> go Jessica Jones and just never change your outfit at all. You know? True, just a leather jacket and you're good to go. Right, Dodi Stewart, a great to talk to you, freelance editor, writer. Recently wrote a piece about the return of the phone booth for the New York Times. I hope we'll talk again soon. Yes, thank you for having me. All right. And that's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. We have a whole bunch of shows coming up this week. I'm going to be in New York for a few days, but we have some of our favorite shows for you coming back. I hope you enjoy them. And thanks to everybody who worked on today's show. I'm in a phone booth, baby.